At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Texas politics and the coming showdown there between populist Democrats and establishment Democrats. D.D. Guttenplan has that report. Also, it's the 50th anniversary of the strike by Columbia University students in May 1968 that was the first of the anti-war campus uprisings of the late 60s in the United States. We'll talk about how it happened and the lessons for today's social justice movements with historian Eric Foner. But first, Trump killed the Iran nuclear deal on Tuesday. Now what? For comment, we turn to Michael Clare. He's the nation's defense correspondent, and he's also professor of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College. He's written 14 books on international energy and security affairs, including, most recently, The Race for What's Left. Michael Clare, welcome to the program. Hope I could be help on this issue. This is big. How big is this? You know, there is some talk that Europe could still maintain the, its deal with Iran and that Trump would, over the long term, renegotiate this in some way. What do you think? No, I don't think there's really a happy outcome from this. I don't see some way in which Europe can rescue the nuclear deal, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which is formally known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, for listeners. I, I don't think that that's possible. Uh, Trump says that he wants to see a clean slate. New negotiations begin with the Iranians for a totally new deal. I don't think that's in the cards at all. Uh, I I think that we're going to see tough sanctions on Iran, and if the Iranians move to restart their nuclear enrichment program, the next step is war. I found a fascinating piece in the Washington Post describing how successful the Iran nuclear agreement has been over the last three years. The U.N. nuclear agency has a monitoring station outside of Vienna where they get live video from inside Iran's once-secret uranium enrichment plants. They receive an unbroken stream of data delivered by cameras and remote sensors. Every week, scientists analyze dust samples that are collected from across Iran looking for 
minute particles that could reveal possible cheating. There are UN inspection teams on the ground in Iran who work every day of the year, checking and rechecking the nuclear facilities there, investigating tips that something might be going on. And all of this, I think there is pretty much unanimous agreement among people who know about it. All of this has been very successful in stopping Iranian nuclear uh, enrichment. That, that is absolutely correct. And it's not just the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors, the UN, Europeans. It's the top American intelligence officials as well. Mike Pompeo, Dan Coates, the, uh, the director of national intelligence, have testified as recently as last month that as far as they know, Iran is in full compliance with the JCPOA, full compliance. There's no evidence whatsoever of Iranian cheating on the deal. How unusual is this degree of scrutiny of Iran's uh, program in our recent history? Oh, this is by far the most intrusive uh, inspection regime ever mounted by the international community. By far, there's never been anything this intrusive in, in terms of the number of inspections, the number of inspectors, the constant intrusion into Iran's facilities, and so on. There's nothing like it, been nothing like it before. Now, Donald Trump complains that Iran is engaged in other activities that he finds offensive, like ballistic missile testing, like uh, supporting Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen, and so on. And the Europeans and others also object to those activities. But those are not covered by the deal that the United States signed. So he can't say that those are, in fact, infractions of the, of the deal. It seems like the effect of Trump's announcement within Iran will inevitably strengthen the hardliners who want to restart the nuclear program and remove the surveillance regime. How likely do you think that is, and how soon do you think that might happen? Now, that's a little bit hard to determine because of the nature of internal politics within Iran and how the uh, supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, chooses to respond to this situation. It would make sense for the Iranians to continue to abide by the agreement and to work with the Europeans and isolate the United States, to portray the United States as the bad guy and create dissension between the U.S. And, the, and its European allies over this issue, and not to rush into to enriching uranium. And on the other hand, there are forces within Iran who feel that the deal never worked to Iran's advantage because the U.S. kept up economic pressure on Iran throughout this period, and so they never received the economic benefit they were led to believe they were going to receive. And so the hardliners may say, let's just go back into enriching uranium because that's to our advantage. How that will play out is impossible to say. 
And this agreement was, let me just underline here, not an agreement between the United States and Iran. It was an international agreement that involved not only Europe, but also Russia and China. I guess we should ask what Russia and China are likely to do here. Russia and China are going to say without question that the United States violated an agreement, was the rogue state, to use a term that that the U.S. once popularized. U.S. is a rogue state defying international norms, scuttled a international agreement that was beneficial to the world community. That's what they're going to say. They're not going to be part of any effort to renegotiate that treaty. And inevitably, we have to talk about Israel. Israel sees Iran as its, uh, you know, primary enemy in the in the region. Uh, this will undoubtedly strengthen the hardliners within Israel. What can you tell us about that situation? Now, now, when we talk about Israel, in this case, you have to narrow it down to one person, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has made it a personal crusade to sabotage the Iran nuclear deal, and he has spent the past uh, how many years trying to do that? He came before Congress in 2015 and tried to sabotage the deal, and he's been working at that ever since. So he certainly is going to be thrilled, and I'm sure he had played a hand in persuading Mr. Trump to do that. In fact, uh, Trump Uh, referred to the intelligence cage that uh, Netanyahu uh, unveiled a few days ago, which supposedly claimed that uh, the Iranians were secretly pursuing a nuclear weapon uh, long after they uh, had agreed to stop any such activities. Um, the Europeans say there is nothing new in all of this, that, that Iran had stopped that long ago, and that in any case, the, the agreement uh, shut down anything they were doing, so it's irrelevant. Nonetheless, Trump referred to these materials that Netanyahu revealed a week ago. So we're really talking about Netanyahu, and I think he's thrilled by all of this. Uh, however... This is going to lead Israel on a collision course with Iran and possibly war, and I'm not sure everyone in Israel is so thrilled about that. (laughs) I think you're right. It was French President Macron who said this could lead to war. I wonder wonder if you have any comment on that. Well, I said uh, at the outset that uh, really the only option left for Trump is war, and he certainly threatened that in his comments in announcing the withdrawal from the agreement. He he said that if if Iran moved in the direction of acquiring nuclear weapons, they would suffer unbearable consequences for that. So there's no question that he has war on his mind, and I I think if. Iran does do something that he can justifiably claim as a cause, a a legitimate cause for attack, he will certainly order American forces to do so. So, you know, I don't want to say we're three months away, six months away, nine months away, 
but we're now on a path towards war. Iran is a big country. How substantial is their military? What kind of military capabilities do they have at this point? Well, Iran is not capable of defeating the United States in warfare. There's no question about that. But it is capable of putting up a tough fight. And I I think its citizens will rally to any attack by foreign powers. So I, I think the resistance will be fierce. What you have to worry about in the case of an attack on Iran is that it has allies throughout the region who are capable of great mischief. It has allies in the the case of Hezbollah. And I don't believe that the conflict that might erupt will just involve the United States and Iran if a conflict erupts. I think it will involve Israel and Israel is likely to attack Iranian outposts in Syria, and that could spark Hezbollah, which has a huge trove of missiles, to attack cities in Israel. So this conflict could spread throughout the region. There are also Iranian-armed Shiite militias in Iraq, in the proximity to American forces in Iraq, that could also come under attack. So throughout the region, there are Iranian armed forces that are capable of inflicting great mischief and harm on American forces, on American allies. Once you launch a war, once you start a war, as Clausewitz once said, uh, famously said, you, you lose control of what happens. The fog of war takes over. That's what worries me about this. The point really that should be made about all of this, I should be clear, is that President Trump has no plan B in tearing up the Iran nuclear deal. He he said, you know, somehow we're going to force the Iranians to come back to the table and make a better deal. But that's utter nonsense. The Europeans say that there's no path to that possibility. And the Iranians say there's no path to that. And certainly Russia and China uh, would not agree to such a, such a path. So really, uh, by tearing up the agreement, I can't see any other plan, uh, uh, any other pathway other than conflict. That's really the, path, the, the point that needs to be made here. Michael Clare, he writes about Iran and the United States for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. Sure thing. It's been a pleasure, even though this is a very troubling topic. Now it's time to talk about Texas politics and the coming showdown there between populist Democrats and establishment Democrats. For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's the nation's editor-at-large, and he's just returned from Texas, and he wrote the cover story on Texas politics for the nation. His book, American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, was awarded the Sperber Prize for Biography. And his latest book, The Nation, A Biography, is available in print or as an ebook at thenation.com/ebooks. We reached him today at home in London. 
on Gut and Plan. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, last time we talked with you here, you had just returned from Jackson, Mississippi, and Chakwe Lumumba. Before that, it was Montana. Now you've been reporting from South Texas, even though you live in London. How how do you do it? I get a lot of uh, <laughs> I get a lot of air miles, <laughs> but the um, the short version of it, uh, to quote the poet, is that something is happening here, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> you know, Chakwe Lumumba said he wants to make Jackson, Mississippi, the most radical city in the country. And meanwhile, in Texas, one of the reddest of red states, you have this rising crop of uh, young radicals who are unabashed about their politics and who are making serious challenges to the Democratic establishment. Well, the Democratic establishment in Texas certainly has had a terrible decade Hillary was a disaster in Texas. She got, I think it was 43% of the vote. Republicans hold all the statewide offices. We're told the reason for that is because Texas voters are pro-gun and anti-immigrant and anti-regulation. We're told that Texas is not ready for Medicare for all or a $15 minimum wage or free college tuition. You just got back from Texas. How much of that is true? Well, almost none of that is true, and you don't have to take my word for it. Stan Greenberg has just published a poll, which has been widely commented on, pointing out that most Texans support stronger gun control, support expanded health care, and are even in favor of legalizing marijuana. So the stereotype that you and I, I must confess, had until a few weeks ago is, is uh, out of date. And you have some firsthand evidence about this from a congressional district way down in the southwest corner of Texas along the Rio Grande, currently a Republican district, uh, where there's a interesting guy who won the first round of the primaries named uh, Rich Trevino. Have I got that right? It's Rick Trevino. And yeah, Rick's district is bigger than the state of Illinois, or for that matter, bigger than the state of New York. It's one of the biggest districts in the country. Uh, he ran in the primary against a hand-picked candidate sponsored by the Castro brothers, you know, Joaquin and his brother, who basically run politics in San Antonio, which is at one side of the district. The other side of the district stretches almost to El Paso and then south along the Rio Grande. So it's 58,000 square miles. And uh, Rick was a high school history teacher who had been a Bernie delegate in Philadelphia, uh, cashed in his pension, quit his job, and with the I think $18,000 he got from his pension, bankrolled a candidacy which got him into the runoff against somebody who he, he finished second to against Gene Ortiz Jones, who spent a million dollars coming in first, and he spent about $40,000 coming in second. And what were the political issues between those two uh, candidates? Well, the political issues in the district are America's military misadventures, the lack of health care, the fact that most people's wages still haven't caught up with their expenses, you know, the, the economy that continues to cause pain for a lot of Americans. And I think what, what made Rick interesting is that he says, I'm not a liberal, I'm a lefty. He's an unabashed radical, uh, and he, he is running a real shoestring campaign, and yet he managed to outrun people who were much better funded and much better connected. 
Well, what the establishment folks say about situations like this is that the weaker Democrats should get out, and they define weaker mostly as meaning they have less money, that money talks, uh, to quote, (laughs) money doesn't talk, it shouts in politics especially, and let the better funded Democrats, you know, have a chance to win, and, and these insurgent populist candidates running on shoestring budgets are simply going to lose the seat to a Republican. What, what is your... Well, one of, the other, one of the other races I went to look at is in the 7th District in Texas, uh, where the centrist Democrats not only said that, they dumped a whole opposition research dossier on Laura Moser, who was running in that district in the primary. Uh, and despite dumping the dossier on her, she's in the runoff uh, against... Lizzie Pinnell Fletcher, who was the anointed candidate of the DCCC and also of Emily's List, even though there isn't a wit's difference between these two women on on women's issues, health care, abortion, etc. And I think it's also interesting to look at, there are races in the country, I don't have them on the top of my head, where the, where the more left candidate actually raised more money, because the the fiction that you've got to be corporate friendly to raise money has been was exploded by Howard Dean in 2004. I mean, we've known for a long time that Democrats don't have to suck up to corporate donors in order to run realistic campaigns. It's a choice some of them do, but you can raise money on the other side. It's harder, but you can do it. And yet when when you have a, an insurgent candidate who raises that kind of money, the centrists never say to the to the centrist candidate you know, kid, it's not your night. They never say that. <laughs> the person in Texas among the insurgent Democrats who everybody has heard of is Beto O'Rourke, who raised a lot of money. He is the hope of the Democrats to take the Senate seat away from the horrible Ted Cruz, and he made national headlines the quarter that he actually raised more money than the horrible Ted Cruz. Everybody says Beto is charismatic and young and appealing and speaks fluent Spanish. I've had a hard time figuring out exactly what are Beto O'Rourke's politics. Uh, I wonder if you can help. Well, I don't think that's an accident. (laughs) I spoke to Beto O'Rourke, and I can personally attest to the fact that he is charming on the telephone. Uh, and I've spoken to a lot of his supporters as I, as I drove across Texas. Um, and I think what's interesting about Beto, if you look at his pictures, he, he, he does have an uncanny physical resemblance to young Bobby Kennedy, the, the Bobby Kennedy who was John F. Kennedy's attorney general. You know, he's got the buck teeth and the thatch of hair and the ready grin, and he's also very thin. But the thing about him that reminds me uncannily of Bobby Kennedy was the fact that Bobby Kennedy was, if you'll recall, somebody who was beloved by Mayor Daley and the Daley machine in Chicago and was also beloved by Cesar Chavez yeah. uh, and Dolores Huerta. And, you know, there was this ability that Bobby had, without appearing completely calculating about it, to, uh, to, to have it both ways, to appeal to constituencies who, in fact, hate each other. And I saw a bit of that with Better O'Rourke in Texas. I mean, I talked to people who really, really don't like corporate Democrats and who love Beto, and then I talked to people who are corporate Democrats and who love Beto. <laughs> um, and it's also interesting that, you know, he was a Hillary Clinton superdelegate in 2016, 
and yet he's come out for Medicare for all. And if there's any litmus test that separates the Bernie Kratz sheep from the corporate goats, it's Medicare for all. Uh, and I think the fact that Beto has come out for it full-throatedly is interesting. You know, we're not supposed to punditize here, but I wonder if you think Beto has a chance. One of the Texas newspapers said, if you're going to bet on Beto, get odds. And I think that's probably reasonable advice. (laughs) He's still a long shot, but, you know, to the extent that money talks, he's outraised Ted Cruz. And also, a point about Ted Cruz that a lot of people have forgotten is that Ted Cruz lost the Republican primary in in his first and only competitive race. He He was a Tea Party challenger who came in second, like some of the people I'm writing about from the left who squeaked into a runoff, and then he just out-organized his opponent in the runoff. He hasn't faced a really competitive race since then. So it's going to be fascinating to watch what happens with O'Rourke and Cruz when they're actually competing against each other, because, of course, Beto has no significant primary opposition. My understanding of Texas politics is quite simple, and that's that the Democrats big problem, aside from gerrymandering and vote suppression, is turnout. Latinos don't vote in Texas the way they do in California. That's because basically they don't have a labor movement led by Latinos that focuses on elections. And the basic question, people who think about it that way, is what's going to change that situation? Uh, Texas is certainly not going to get a vibrant Latino labor movement, since it's an open shop state. Exciting candidates would help, and I just wonder, is your sense that, is Beto exciting enough to increase turnout significantly? Are the Castro twins capable of uh, of doing this? The Castro twins are not capable of doing this, not because they're not both reasonably charismatic, but because they don't really have anything to offer people to change their lives. I mean, you know, this is the... This is the offer that Hillary Clinton made, which is that America is already great. We don't really need to change very much. It really annoys people, if not infuriates them, when when they know from their own lives that that's not the case. I I think that whether it happens this year or in a future year, I do think that Rick Trevino is a kind of candidate who can excite not just Hispanic voters in in Texas, but also uh, progressive and populist voters in Texas. And he's running in a district that's 70% Hispanic, but of course the voting population is not 70% Hispanic. So, you know, that in a sense is what's going to make the difference for him. If he can excite Hispanic voters, then he really has a chance. If not, not. The other thing to say is that Texas is not a Republican state, as they say. It's a Democratic state with a turnout problem. And a large part of that, though, is not just the lack of a Hispanic-led labor movement, but gerrymandering. I mean, if if you've been voting for years and nothing changes because your district is so gerrymandered that wherever you are, you're diluted by literally thousands of square miles of white rural Texas voters, you know, you begin to think it's not worth the bother. Don Guttenplan, his report, Texas Showdown, Inside the Battle for the Democratic Party is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. You can read it now at thenation.com. Thank you, Don. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
It's the 50th anniversary this week of the uprising by Columbia University students in 1968. For comment on what happened and about the lessons for the left today, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he's the award-winning historian of the Reconstruction era. He's written many books. I think my favorite right now is The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. It won the Pulitzer Prize for History and the Bancroft Prize. He's on the editorial board of The Nation, and he writes for the magazine, also for The New York Times and the London Review of Books. He has both a BA and a PhD from Columbia, and he's taught there for more than 30 years. Eric Foner, welcome back. Uh, Thank you, John. Columbia in in April and May 1968 set the template, followed by, you know, a hundred other schools in the next couple of years. SDS, Students for Democratic Society, organized the students against the war in Vietnam and four black issues. Then students occupy the campus administration building and protest against university complicity in the war. The school calls the police. The police attack the students indiscriminately, violently. Thousands of previously unengaged students are shocked to join a student strike. Eventually, the school makes some concessions. Maybe the president resigns. Columbia students did it first. So the big question is, how did it happen at Columbia? First of all, of course, we had been preceded by the Berkeley Free Speech Movement a couple of years earlier, Yes, which, however, as you said, did not actually occupy buildings, but it did show the possibility of mass organizing on campus. You know, one of the things we tend to forget is that up until the 1960s, campuses, college campuses, were bastions of conservatism. Mostly, a much smaller number of people went to college. They tended to be from the um, wealthier parts of the uh, society. So the idea of young people taking the lead in radical action was quite unusual. But why did it happen at Columbia? There was a kind of perfect storm. You had these two mass movements in the society at that time, the black struggle and uh, the anti-war movement. But at Columbia, they both reached onto the campus in very specific ways. The, you know, one of the big issues was the university's plan to build a gymnasium in a public park right next to Columbia, uh, which was used by uh, residents of Harlem, and it was sort of taking public land. And they also, you know, uh, had a design whereby uh, local residents would sort of go in the bottom and use some little uh, separate and unequal part of the gym. Uh, the rest of it would be for uh, the Columbia students. Uh, so that seemed to sort of fit into a long pattern of Columbia's uh, poor relations, to say the least, with its surrounding community, mostly inhabited by black and Hispanic uh, people. And then the anti-war movement, uh, of course, which had galvanized uh, hundreds of thousands of students. But on Columbia campus, there was this thing called the Institute for Defense Analysis, where some professors were doing basically war research right on campus. So in other words, these broad social public issues also had a very immediate local resonance. And I think that had a lot to do with the mobilization on campus. I spoke with Mark Rudd recently, who was the leader of SDS at at Columbia, and uh, he emphasized what he called building the base, the the sort of daily work of knocking on dorm doors and uh, talking to students who weren't political, who weren't engaged, who, who were uninformed or apathetic. He said he had started out himself as an uninformed and apathetic student, but uh, an SDS elder uh, knocked on his door, Dave Gilbert, in fact. And, oh, my goodness. 
and convinced him that he should become an activist. And it seemed like Columbia did have some very experienced and uh, talented student organizers. Mark Rudd said they were red diaper babies, children of, of activists from the earlier generation. Yeah, well, he's absolutely right about that. I mean, I've noticed, having taught here for a long time, as you said, that sometimes uh, modern day, or let's say in the 80s or 90s, or even today, modern day student activists on campus are a little bit intimidated by the sort of memory of 1968. You know, uh, you don't get thousands of people out on the campus nowadays. And I always said, you know, that was the end result of years of organizing. You know, when SDS held a meeting, let's say in 1966, 20 people would come. It wasn't like this suddenly popped up out of nowhere. It required, it built slowly, student activism built slowly, and it did require a lot of broadening of the base, as Mark said. Even before that, uh, as you may know, you know, my, myself and some of my good friends, Jonah Raskin, this is in the early 60s, had formed a what they call the Campus Political Party uh, Action, which was sort of parallel to Slate at Berkeley and uh, one of them at Michigan. This was sort of the uh, prehistory to SDS. And uh, so, and we had done organizing on campus. So this had been going on for a good while, and therefore by 68 there were a good number of students who had been aroused to political consciousness, and that certainly helped this movement get going. But then it did attract a lot of people who just the the movement itself, the action itself, kind of galvanized support, as well as opposition. The campus was completely divided in the week that uh, students occupied five buildings on campus. Then, as you mentioned, when the police stormed the campus and actually did much more physical harm to bystanders than to students in the buildings because they decided to just clear the campus when there were thousands of students out there watching what was going on, and clearing the campus just meant catching up with anybody who couldn't run fast enough and beating them over the head with a billy club. And that sort of shifted public opinion on campus completely in favor of the uh, student occupiers and against the administration. I believe the uh, the New York Police Department treated the black students who had occupied one building differently from the way they treated the white students. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, we are right next to Harlem, and there was always this fear, whether valid or not, that if anything happened to the black students, Harlem, quote-unquote, the real Harlem or an imaginary Harlem, would kind of storm the campus. And they didn't want tales going out of black students being assaulted by the basically fundamentally all-white police force at that time. Also, the black students had gotten support from black public officials, black members of the city council, black public figures like, you know, H. Rap Bound had been to campus, Stokely Carmichael had visited. So, yes, they treated the black students with uh, kid gloves. They, They were removed from their building very peacefully. One thing I will say, though, is the black students who were given plenty of opportunities by the administration to cut their own deal refused to do so. One of the lessons of 68 is the importance of, uh, to use an old uh, phrase, black-white cooperation. Mm. Yes, the blacks said, we want our own building. This was the height of black power. But they 
stuck with the demands of the entire movement and did not, uh, you know, abandon the other, the white students. And I, um, I give them credit for that. They saw that they were part of a larger thing, not just a, an autonomous uh, black presence. Well, let's talk about some other lessons for today's uh, movements for social justice and, and climate action. One seems to be build the base. There's no substitute for talking to the uncommitted and convincing the uninformed or the apathetic and recruiting them. You've said a black-white cooperation in unity. Uh, I also want to think just for a minute about the the media. Uh, how did the media do in uh, how the mainstream media do in in 1968? Uh, not very well. Uh, I'd say they propagated a lot of fake news about what was going on at uh, Columbia. The, the worst offender was the New York Times. The publisher of the New York Times, Salzberger, was on the board of trustees of Columbia. And uh, the Times basically portrayed this as, you know, an assault on Western civilization. The university must be above politics. Of course, the university was doing war research, so mm. therefore it had already made a political commitment just the wrong way. And then when the, you know, one of the things that shocked students, secondly, after seeing the police unleashed, was that the next day the New York Times uh, reported that everything had been done peacefully. You know, there hadn't been any uh, injuries until there was so much complaint about that that they had to publish a revised story saying, oh, yeah, well, actually, quite a few people were injured. We didn't notice that at first. So, you know, the, the awareness of how the power elite operates, to borrow a phrase from C. Wright Mills, uh, was also one of the educational elements here. So the media did not do very well except for the Columbia media. The Columbia student newspaper, The Spectator, was excellent every single day in saying what was going on. And the Columbia student radio station, WKCR, uh, broadcast, you know, whose signal goes out over the whole metropolitan area, they covered what was happening 24 hours a day. And people in the New York uh, area who wanted to know what was happening tuned in to WKCR, often for the first time, the student radio station, not uh, not the CBS, NBC, or the New York Times. We've been focusing on the events of a, a couple of weeks and the year or two leading up to them. Let's talk for a minute about the next couple of years, the problem for the Columbia SDS leaders and national SDS after 1968, really for the whole anti-war movement, was that we weren't ending the war. We were right about the war. We had huge protests. We had eventually millions of people, but the war went on. And some of our friends concluded that nonviolent mass protest doesn't work. We need to do more. We need to be more militant. We need to move from protest uh, to resistance. And that meant to some of our friends uh, going underground and uh, engaging in, in symbolic uh, bombing attacks on things like the Pentagon and the Capitol building. Of course, yeah. that, did, that didn't end the war either. So the big issue is how do you sustain the commitment in view of the recalcitrance and the power of the status quo? Well, first of all, I, of course, I know who you are talking about, and several of the leaders of the weathermen, as they call themselves, did come directly out of the Columbia, Columbia uprising. And, of course, at least one of those killed in the townhouse accidental explosion in 1970, I guess it was, in New York City, where they were making bombs and uh, made a mistake, was Ted Gold, who was a Columbia student, active in 68. 
you know, and I think that was a complete mistake. And, uh, of course, the student movement peaked really in 1970, not 68, with the invasion of Cambodia. Yeah. And massive demonstrations all over the country. Uh, you know, in '70, uh, things spread not just you know it wasn't just Berkeley or Harvard or Michigan or Columbia, but Kent State and many other places like that, which were much more working class in the composition of their student body. The National Guard was on many campuses uh, in uh, in uh, 1970. Columbia closed down again in 1970, and it's very unfortunate that some of those leaders of the Columbia uprising were no longer around, so to speak, to provide leadership uh, two years later when, when all that happened. What is to be done, uh, to coin a phrase? You know, I mean, I think, think we need to go back to the abolitionist movement for a model. You know, they, they did everything. They worked politically. They uh, gave speeches. They circulated petitions. Uh, they ran candidates for office. But, but they also worked underground, so to speak. They uh, broke the law by helping fugitive slaves, uh, things like that. In other words, you can work both above ground and below ground at the same time. And I think the uh, weathermen didn't quite understand that, and uh, that was a dead end, I'm sorry to say, which had very uh, deleterious uh, consequences. Last question. Who do you think is doing a good job on the left now. We have big protest movement around gun control, around racist policing, around climate change. What do you see there? All those people are doing a good job. I mean, you have mass uh, movements about all sorts of issues now, which is all to the good. President Trump, as you know, has galvanized a very, uh, very vital opposition, uh, which has not lost its energy in the last uh, year or so. But I do think it's important, uh, even the Columbia, you know, uprising, which linked the black movement and the anti-war movement, it's important for these movements to sort of somehow speak to each other, come together, work together. You know, that's one of the lessons of the 60s, the importance of doing that. And I think if you have, uh, there's too many movements that are based on a single issue which don't quite connect up with other such movements. Not all of them are like that, but uh, there are quite a few now, I think, like that. And that leads to fragmentation and ultimately, I think, to disappointment. Eric Foner, historian and Columbia alumnus. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. It's always yep. great to have you on the show. Always good to talk to you, John. <laughs> Finally, what makes LeBron James unique? That's the subject of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, the Edge of Sports podcast where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, 
Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop and BMF. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.